If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9. This morning we are beginning a short topical series for the summer. Uh, Richard and I thought it would be good to complement what's going to begin in our adult discipleship class uh, next week. There we are seeking to uh, be reminded and refreshed on the basics of disciple-making. We're all called to go and make disciples, or better, while we are going to make disciples. And the question is, how do we do that? What does that look like, especially here at Crossway? And as the leadership and and of you, as we have taken you on that journey in years past, looking through the New Testament, we think it is abundantly clear that the task of disciple-making is fundamentally the ministry of every individual Christian. Disciples make disciples. Every follower of Christ has the privileged calling of bringing the gospel to bear in the lives of those around them, that disciples might be made. That work of discipleship begins when we share the good news of Christ with someone, perhaps who's heard for the first time, maybe not, but is clearly lost in sin. We seek to faithfully present Christ as the only hope for salvation prayerfully asking God's Spirit to open that person's eyes to believe the gospel of Christ. And when they do, we rejoice that that person has passed from death to life and experiences salvation. But disciple-making does not stop there. Disciple-making is not conversion-making. It is disciple-making, which means a disciple must be grown. And as Jesus said, be taught to obey all that He has commanded. How do you live out the life that Christ calls his people to. And so we help this person grow in their faith. We teach them how to read God's word for spiritual nourishment. We, we teach them how to pray for fellowship with their Savior. We also help them mature by teaching them how to live as a disciple of Christ, teaching them practical ministry skills like how to share their faith with others so that they as a disciple can go on to make disciples. Thus, in broad terms, the process of discipleship is seen in evangelism, encouragement, and equipping for ministry. And one question we want to consider is, what role does the local church play in that? If it's, a, if it's a, if an individual ministry, then what does it have to do with the church and its mission? Well, in Jesus' statement, his commissioning of the church, you'll notice when he talks about making disciples, he includes baptism there. Why, why would he do that? Why is it so important? What function does it play? It actually ties the individual mandate in the life of the disciple to the larger vision that God has for his people gathered together as a church. Baptism was then and still is today the spiritual rite that brings people into the fellowship of the church. So you can, you can say you are a Christian, you can perhaps be a Christian, but baptism is your public profession of faith whereby the church welcomes you and accepts you into their fellowship and their family. Long term, you can't be a true disciple with a deep connection without a deep connection to a local community of disciples. In other words, being part of a local church is not optional for God's people. That's clear in Jesus putting baptism as part of disciple making in Matthew 28. You can be a lone ranger for a while, but you will not grow. You will not be living in obedience to Christ's command for you as his follower, if you are not intimately connected to a local church. Jesus did not promise that all his disciples would prevail against the gates of hell. He said that his church would not be stopped by the gates of hell. 
And so the local church plays an important role. It is a training camp and a sending center for us individually as disciple makers. The local church provides the perfect matrix of community and teaching that allows the maturing process that God desires to continue and to flourish. When the gathering of God's people takes place, we are meant to be encouraged and corrected by one another as we prayerfully speak God's word which intends to draw us into closer fellowship with God the Father, so we will be more equipped by the power of God the Spirit to make disciples of Jesus who is God the Son. And so David Platt is right when he says that though every disciple is called to make disciples, our disciple-making ministry isn't meant to be in isolation from the local church. Here's what he says. It's about being a part of a body and together making disciples. Those unbelievers that we are seeking to make disciples of need to see evidence of the community around Christ. They need to see the love of Christ in action. They need to see the mercy of Christ in action. The church needs to become a picture that, especially for hardened hearts of unbelievers, softens them towards the goodness of Christ in the community of faith. We don't just walk in isolation. We walk together in love and service to one another. We're teaching the word to each other, and the word is spreading through each other. All of that has to happen in the context of relationships with other people. And so disciple-making is intricately tied to commitment with a local church. So when we are pressing into the details, the specifics, the encouragement, and the training over the next several weeks about individual disciple-making, do not think we intend to divorce that from local church life. The church especially as some nondescript entity or as something represented by leadership is not finally responsible for making disciples. The church as the gathering of individual believers is finally responsible for disciple-making and fulfillment of Christ's commands. In order to focus on this individual mindset and skill, over the next few weeks, we want to do two things, two kind of approaches. In our discipleship class on Sunday morning that we're going to uh, go down to just one class, in part because it's the summertime and there's a lot of variance in, um, in attendance, but, but more importantly because we want everybody to walk through this with us. Uh, we're going to get a kind of uh, New Testament picture of what disciple-making looks like that will be accompanied with uh, the kind of nitty-gritty, stand-between-your-toes kinds of tools and instruction on how to actually make disciples, how to evangelize, encourage. We were going to be equipping you, and some of you will be ready to equip others as well. And here, we want to complement that with a vision of Jesus as the master disciple-maker. There is certainly a sense in which what he does, even in this passage, is going to be unique, but there's also a passage in which he is setting the example for all of his people. He is setting the standard, the gold standard, for how we go about living our lives, making disciples of all people. And so what, do we, what does it mean? What does it look like for Jesus to evangelize the lost? How does he go about encouraging the faith of his disciples so they will grow and mature more and more? How did he equip his disciples with training for ministry? Those are the things that we want to look through. And when I say we, uh, if you've not caught on through various means, I'm gone this week to India for, for, for a week, two Sundays. So Pastor Richard and, and Doug, who is in training for an elder, will be uh, taking up some of these preaching responsibilities. We are going to be walking to the Gospels and just hitting the highlights, these snapshots of Jesus in action as the master disciple maker. This morning we come to Matthew 9, 
beginning with this kind of big picture of why Jesus came and how he goes about bringing the good news to those that are lost in sin. We start with this image of Jesus as the evangelist disciple maker. Follow along as I begin reading Matthew 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As we seek to unpack these verses this morning, Matthew first shows us that Jesus calls sinners. Jesus calls sinners. Luke begins by telling us that Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, who was this man? Well, I'll give you a little hint in the long term. We're reading out of a book called Matthew. All right, that's not a mistake here. You should draw the connection. The guy who wrote this book is telling you about how his journey started to get to the point where he writes a gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? But in the context of this passage, more importantly, we're told in verse 9 everything we need to know about this man. He was sitting at the tax booth. That means he himself is a tax collector. That means in his culture, he was despised. And not just because people didn't like paying taxes, although that's true today just as it was back then. But you have to understand the unique context in which Matthew is a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes from his fellow Jewish people, though working for the Roman government. Uh, the Romans appointed small-time rulers in the provinces they conquered. Those were often local men. They were there to keep the peace as, also, as well as to collect taxes. But those local rulers did not want to get involved in the taxation, the collection of the taxes. They wanted to be able to keep their hands clean, so at least visibly, they were not directly involved. And so what they would do is contract out the work to local people, basically saying, how much are you willing to collect for me? How, how hard are you willing to push on the people? And the highest bidder won the contract. But the amount of the bid was not public knowledge. Nobody knew how much that man was supposed to collect in taxes. And therefore, he could... He could charge whatever he wanted and keep the overage. Now, everybody knew that that was, the, that was the case. Everybody knew that that's how this job worked. But what they didn't know was how much that person was making. And so what you had was a system that was filled with corruption, most tax collectors becoming filthy rich. It's not hard to understand why people in the community did not like those sitting at the tax booth. But that was made all the worse for Matthew because he was a Jew. He would have been considered a thief a thief, because he took more than he deserved, gouging the people of their resources. Second, Matthew's fellow countrymen would have seen him as a traitor. A traitor because he worked with the Roman oppressors. Remember, the nation of Israel did not gladly yield to the Roman government. They didn't say, oh, of course, come and rule over us. We would love that. Not at all. Finally, some would have even seen him as being tainted tainted under the law because of how much interaction he had with Gentiles. Some rabbis went so far as to declare that anyone or anything inside the tax collector's house was to be considered ceremonially unclean or impure. 
Matthew was the lowest of the low, a sinner if there ever was one in the eyes of his fellow Jews. Yet what does Jesus do? He sees him and he says to him, follow me. It's interesting that Jesus did not go to those who had the reputation of holiness, like the Pharisees. Instead, he goes to a man who knows he is despised, who knows he is a sinner. And he goes in pursuit of that man, Matthew. He approaches him. He initiates a relationship with him. And he's not just saying, hi, how is your day going? He's issuing a call of discipleship. He looks at Matthew and says, follow me. It's comforting to know, even as we read in Ephesians 1, even as we confessed this morning from the New City Catechism, that before we're ever thinking of God, before we desire to know Him, before we even see our need of being forgiven by Him, God is pursuing us. God sees our sin. God knows our corruption. He understands the filthiness of our lives and our hearts which love our sin, and He comes after us anyway. He calls not the righteous, but sinners. He calls us to turn from our sins and follow his son, Jesus. How did Matthew answer that call? Well, remember, this is chapter 9. Jesus has been on the scene for quite a while. Matthew has surely heard Jesus preaching before this. He's no stranger to Matthew. But now, now he's standing in front of Matthew. Matthew's not just hearing him, perhaps on the edge of the mount where Jesus is preaching, hearing the teaching as it comes out. He's not just watching him on the the outside uh, outside edges of the crowd, uh, healing and performing miracles. Jesus has walked up. And perhaps perhaps you could have felt the tension there as as people are milling about doing their business. And Jesus is well known at this point. He's popular at this point, and yet he cuts through that crowd. He comes right down, perhaps leans down his face in between the tables of taxation there and looks at Matthew and says, follow me. How does he respond to that direct call, that that issuing of grace that says, I know who you are. Look where you're sitting. Everybody knows who you are and what you do, but I want you to follow me. Verse 9 says that he rose and he followed him. It's two very simple verbs, a very simple phrase, but a profound response for two reasons. First of all, it's a response of submission. It's a response of submission. Matthew recognizes the authority of Jesus and obeys his voice. He rises and follows the one who commands him to follow. See, even here, again, in, in the issuing of the call, Jesus is not saying... Well, what do you think? You want to come try this out for a while? You want to be my friend? You want to hang? You, you know, we're itinerant preaching, preaching bands. We're going to get free stuff. We'll be in Jewish homes. It's going to be great. It's not what he says. He looks at him and he issues the divine command, follow me. And Matthew follows. Elsewhere, Jesus says that one of the marks of every true disciple is this. They hear the voice of their shepherd. They know him and they follow him. But more than that, Matthew's response was also one of sacrifice was one of sacrifice. He rose and followed him. Now think about what this means. Again, you've got to put yourself into the mindset, into the culture of this first century Jewish life under the Roman authorities. He's leaving the tax booth to follow Jesus. What did the other disciples do? Many of them were fishermen. They had a business of fishing. You get out of your boat, you put your net down there, you go follow Jesus. Guess what happens? You come back to your boat later if you want to. That's not going to happen for Matthew. 
He is breaking his contract with the Roman authorities. Not only raising the ire of that local governor who now has to go and find someone to take his place, but he's lost any chance of ever getting his job back. This is a costly response for Matthew. He is leaving it all behind. Not surprisingly, in other passages, Jesus will say things like this, if you love the things of this world more than thee, you're not worthy of me. And leave behind everything and follow me. And that's exactly what Matthew does here. Matthew sees something in Jesus that causes him to say it is worth the sacrifice to follow and to be a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus is about more than just punching a membership card. It's more than just casual involvement in a community organization. Being a disciple of Jesus is everything. It's everything. If there is not if, if there is any part of your life that is not touched by your decision to follow Christ, then you've got some growth and maturity to, to go. You, you, you're not living the discipleship life as if everything is cool. That, that's not what Jesus calls us to. Following Jesus is about his lordship over your life. It's about taking off that rusted, broken, makeshift crown that you cobbled together from the best works you can muster and throw it in the garbage where it deserves and acknowledging the glorious, righteous, eternal crown on Jesus' head and saying, I will follow you. Whether through pain or pleasure, through joy or difficulty, through sickness or health, I am part of your bride, the church, and you are my husband, the bridegroom, my savior, God's very son. What they acknowledge, what every disciple sees is that following Jesus is the greatest treasure of our life and therefore it is still joy in every sacrifice that it requires to follow him. And those that leave everything behind like Matthew, those that answer the call when Jesus issues it find that Jesus doesn't just call sinners to be his disciples, he also commissions his disciples. Jesus commissions disciples. Verse 10 says that as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, what's the house? Jesus is reclining at the house. What, what house? Well, it's Matthew's house. Uh, you, you notice the strong connection with the word and there. He followed, Matthew follows him and it's not just any old house, it's the house. Who else is going to be on such good terms with other tax collectors so as to have an entire house filled with them but Matthew? And if all of that is not implicitly clear to you, Luke's account of this makes it explicitly clear that Matthew made Jesus a great feast in his house and there were a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So this is Matthew's house now. Later there will come a formal time of commissioning where Jesus says, I am sending you out to preach the gospel, to call people everywhere to repentance and faith in my name. But here, Matthew implicitly understands the right response that one should have after following Jesus as a disciple. You tell other people. You tell other people. You don't say, that's great. It's like, it's like my State Farm uh, fire insurance card now. I just tuck it in my pocket and I know it doesn't matter what I do, I'm just going to die, I'm going to go to heaven. That's not what Matthew does. It's not what any disciple should do. 
If you've encountered Christ, if you understand the grace that has been issued in that call, calling you and all of your filth to come and follow him and be a disciple, the object of his affection, how can you not tell people? How can it not just explode from out of you? I've got to go tell people. What does he do? He finds the people just like him, all these other tax collectors, people that he knows need Jesus. But this should be obvious, right? If our kids score well on tests or perform at high capacity in sports, what do we do? We flood social media with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're proud of them. We're happy for them. We want the whole world to know how awesome our kids are. For some of us, it's a pride issue. Others of us, we're just happy for them. If it turns out that we've chosen well and who we marry, our spouse is awesome, and they are a gift from God, what do we do? We want to tell people about them. We want to extol their virtues and magnify their worth. Hopefully not just on social media, but to their face. Tell them, you're awesome, I love you, thank you so much for all you do for me. And you tell others the same. I mean, this is normal. This is what we do, right? We go into the Grand Canyon, we take pictures. Depending on how brave we are, either from way back at the edge or way close to the edge, snapping straight down. We want to tell people, look at this great and glorious thing. How much more Jesus How much more all that he's accomplished for us to be made right with God? Beyond just the perfection of his sinless life for us, he is glorious in his death and in his resurrection. On the cross, he satisfied God's every demand of holiness for us. He lovingly obeyed the Father's will even to death for us. And when God's spirit reveals our sin to us, I don't just mean, oh, you're a sinner. No, I mean when the spirit opens the mind's eye so that we see the reality of the vileness and the filth and and we begin to just want to curl up in a ball because we can hardly ponder the fact that God's grace would even come near to us. That he would, would, more than that, he poured out the blood of his son for us. How can we not speak of Christ? How can we not speak of God and his love? that would rescue us from the damnation we deserved? How can we be indifferent to Jesus? How can we not desire to help others find the same joy and grace that we have? That's what Matthew did. He gathered to himself all of the many tax collectors and sinners he knew, and at great expense to himself, he threw this massive party that they might know Jesus and find forgiveness as he had. Think about the generosity that Matthew displays here. Not just willing to have people in his home, but to flood his home. Now I understand that Homes back then and homes today are very different, but, but try to imagine it for yourself. You, you know, you're, you're, you're not just rolling out, you know, uh, some cheese and crackers here. I mean, you've got the steak dinner going, right? You've got ribs on the barbecue. You've got all the trimmings and fixings, and your house is stuffed, which means that people are going to break things. They're going to spill things. Uh, it might take you a day or two to finish just cleaning up and putting things back together from having them over. And you don't care because they got to meet Jesus. Is that how we follow him? Is that how we respond to the same call that we have, Matthew's call, our call? Though he got to look into the eyes of Jesus issuing the call, it's no different. We're both called, if you are a disciple, to follow Christ. Some of you think, well, I, don't, I can't be generous. I mean, he's a, he's a filthy rich tax collector, right? He had the money to spend. Maybe so. But you know what? All of us has things like time. Perhaps you need to be sacrificial with your time. Perhaps you live in a place where there is all kinds of sinners right out your front door. And what you need to do 
is grab a Bible and a lawn chair and set up shop on some sidewalk and just start talking to people as they pass by. Or perhaps you should partner with someone, if you are bold in evangelism but have little resources, partner with someone that has a lot of resources. Let them fund your ministry so that together you are partners in evangelism and you, the bold one, training them. This is what it looks like to be bold and to preach the gospel to people. Some of us might make the mistake of thinking of our home as a retreat and refuge from life. Well, I just work hard. I want to come home and relax. I don't want people to bother me. Just leave me alone. That sounds like an idol to me. And I'm not saying there's not a place for rest and relaxation. There is. If you don't get away with your family, you won't have a family. If you don't rest and relax even from ministry, you won't have a ministry for long. But nothing is off limits to God, including what we think is of a refuge. It's not a castle. We should think of our homes as a center of ministry. Most of us don't have the problem of not relaxing. Most of us have the problem of running around making ourselves so crazy and other things. We don't have time or energy for ministry. A shift in how we think about our life and about the, the, what we invest time and money in needs to change. And Matthew helps us see that. He helps us see that every good, what every good disciple should know, and that is disciples are commissioned to make more disciples. The way we live our life, even enjoying to the fullest the good gifts that God has given to us, is not about us. Our lives are not about us. Our relationships are not about us. Have you stopped to ponder this? When God gives you a friendship, that is not just for your well-being. It is a gift to be stewarded just like a dollar in your wallet. What are you doing with that relationship for the glory of Christ? Perhaps we need to spend time prayerfully recalibrating our life to think about our calling and commissioning. Perhaps we need to recalibrate our life in light of the joy and forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And if that's a struggle for you this morning, you know, I, I, you know, I need this, but I don't know how to do it. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, oh, I don't like what I'm hearing here. Jesus can help even in this passage. For here we see lastly that Jesus clarifies priorities. Jesus clarifies priorities. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Jesus called a known and notorious sinner to be one of his disciples. Then that disciple has put on a huge dinner party, inviting all of his sinner friends to come and meet Jesus, the man who changed his life, and not everybody is happy about it. Now, thinking about the larger context of Matthew, we know that even already the disciple or the Pharisees are not big fans of Jesus. You know, they, they came out to John the Baptist, they didn't like what he was preaching. John pointed to Jesus. They went to Jesus. They're not quite sure about him. They think he's from God, but they don't like what he's saying. And so they're kind of following at this distance, and they kind of see what's his commotion, what's Jesus doing. And, and, and they see what's happening with his dinner party. And the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, these people would not be caught dead eating with these kind of people. And notice, isn't it interesting? They don't ask Jesus why he's doing it. They ask the disciples. And their question is not really a question, it's a charge of guilt. Why is he doing this? As if there's no good reason. You say, well, what's the big deal? He's just having lunch, right? Well, no. In this culture, in some ways, even today, eating with someone is often more, about, more than just food. It's about more than just food. It's about, it's about breaking bread together. It's about intimacy and fellowship. In the context of this culture, you didn't invite your enemies 
to the dinner table with you. And so that's why these Pharisees cannot fathom that Jesus would be eating with tax collectors and sinners. In their mind, they would be ritually unclean to go into Matthew's house, let alone sit and break bread with him. But notice verse 12, when Jesus heard their complaint, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, what's interesting is that Matthew puts us right after Jesus physically heals a person. And he wants us to draw the connection there between physical ailments and spiritual ailments. He wants us to see that people are spiritually sick because of sin. And Jesus has come to do that more important healing than any physical healing that he did. And just as a doctor who treats physical sickness doesn't spend all his time putting lollipops in the mouths of kids that feel better. Or looking and saying, yep, all your bones are there, nothing broken. Well, they go and hang out with sick people, diseased people, people who need their help. So also Jesus says, I'll not forsake sinners. I will not not be around those that are spiritually sick and in need of a spiritual doctor. And that's why he can have as the banner over his life said to his father before his birth, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, the Pharisees envisioned a Messiah who's going to come and crush sinners and exalt the righteous when he comes. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but not yet. Not yet, because you don't understand what real righteousness is. You don't understand that what real sin is. You don't understand that you are a sinner. And before we get to final judgment, we're going to have salvation. Full and complete through my own death and resurrection. Jesus tries to clarify in their minds his mission as the Messiah. The problem is the Pharisees don't see themselves as being sick. They don't see themselves as needing a spiritual physician. Why? Because they keep the law. They have God's commands. We know how we should live and that's what we do. We obey, therefore we are righteous. We don't need a savior. But they're wrong. Absolutely wrong. To help illustrate this, Tim Keller points to one of the greatest historical documents that we have in this country. It's a small little document, just about a page long. It's written by a little semi-illiterate farmer in Middletown, Connecticut in 1740 after he was converted at an outdoor preaching service when he heard the great Anglican evangelist George Whitfield preach. The man was named Nathan Cole with no punctuation, no capital letters. He wrote down his testimony. He wrote an account of what happened to him hearing Whitfield preach. He gets to the end of that account and here's what he says. Whitfield's preaching, quote, gave me a heart wound. By God's grace, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. That's what the Pharisees needed to learn. Whatever righteousness we have, no matter how pure our standards, they can never meet God's standards. That's why we need Jesus. All of us are sinners in desperate need of God. And God reveals himself. God gives himself to us through the person of the Son. That's why Jesus wants them to know, verse 13, he came not to call the righteous but sinners because the righteous will not respond. They don't see their need of Jesus. They don't understand what the big deal is. But sinners do. And that's why Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. If you think you're going to get by in your own righteousness, you're never going to see Jesus. You're never going to know what it's about. And Jesus continues to drive into the Pharisees on this. Verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, some of us immediately think, oh, okay. But no, you don't understand. It's like, ah! I mean, you know, it's kind of that drop the mic moment where Jesus just lobbed this spiritual grenade at these Pharisees. And I can only imagine the kind of either enraged look or the ghastly look that came in their eye. Remember, these guys think of themselves as the exemplars of life lived according to God's word. They attended the synagogue all the time. They memorized large portions of the Old Testament. They debated the finer points of theology. These guys pride themselves on knowing and living according to God's law. Sounds like some evangelicals today. But here's what Jesus says about them. Here's how he condemns them. You pride yourselves on knowing and living God's word, but you need to go back to the scriptures and do more study because you don't even know what it says. Its meaning is not obvious to you. Go and learn what God is saying in Hosea 6. That's where he's quoting from. And in that context, Hosea is condemning the same kind of people as the Pharisees, this larger culture of Israel that kept on with the sacrifices, that kept on with the temple stuff, with kept on with living according to the law, but their hearts were far from God. They had religion that was hollow and lacked any kind of zeal or passion or love for the Lord. Jesus is saying to them, just as the prophet explains later, they have a knowledge of God. They don't, rather, have a knowledge of God. They just have burnt offerings. They don't know me. They just put dead animals in my face. Jesus' point was not that Israel should forget law-keeping. That wasn't Hosea's point. The point was law-keeping should flow from the heart. Obedience should flow from love and the acknowledgement that God, by His grace, has redeemed your life from the pit. Don't just have the outer shell of religion, have the heart of religion, which comes by faith in God. Apart from that, the Pharisees talk a good game, but they're just like the apostates of ancient Israel, according to Jesus. And so Jesus, again, clarifies His mission, their misunderstanding at the very end of the passage. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And if Jesus is going to call sinners and offer forgiveness through faith and repentance to them, then guess what? He's going to have to be around sinners. He's going to have to sit at table with the tax collectors and the sinners who are eager to hear what he has to say. Jesus did not go where he was most wanted, but where he was most needed. Now, as we think about this picture of Jesus... What should we learn from him? Well, hopefully we've learned quite a bit already, but let me just put a fine point on two, two, two applications for this morning. First, we should humble ourselves and look at the real need. We should humble ourselves and look at the real need that people have in their life. It's frankly unthinkable, at least to my mind, when one considers the eternal weight of glory that Christ once knew that he should then choose to willingly take on humanity and live amongst the dregs of society, even to the point that he would die for them. I mean, just dwell on the display of humility in Jesus' incarnation. Hold that thought in your mind for a while, and, and at least for me, it's very difficult to be offended at anything. I mean, you're bebopping along, trying to get somewhere, some joker cuts you off, and you're like, bah, bah, you're all angry and stuff, and then this vision of the Lord of glory being spat upon naked on a plank of wood. 
What am I angry about? What, why am I offended? N nothing I will go through compares to that. Yet pride is hard to kill, even among God's people. And there's always the temptation to think that we are better than others. That people should come to us. We don't need to go to them. There's certain kinds of people we're just not going to hang around. We're not going to minister to because somehow they might contaminate us. A man by the name of William Booth found this out back in 1846. In an effort to win the lost, he went to those in the city who no one seemed to be concerned with, the poor and the needy. And one Sunday, he had rounded up a few dozen people and led them into the church and sat right at the front that they might have the best seats in the house and hear the gospel message. But he was only given glares of disdain. He was told that these kinds of people need to sit in the back behind the screens so that the other members and the preacher would not have to look at them during the service. He was actually kicked out of that Methodist church that he was attending. And it's not surprising that he went on to start his own kind of church called the Salvation Army. Consider Calvin's words when he speaks of Christ. He says that he came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of uncleanness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. That was Jesus' mission, and he calls us to join him in that. Not by dying for them ourselves, but by proclaiming his death to them, by showing his love for them. Every disciple has that same ministry, and it means engaging rather than shunning those that might seem undesirable or even disgusting by our standards or by cultures. We must take the worst, we must take rather the gospel to the worst of sinners because that's why Christ came, and that's why he has sent us out. Now, just like Jesus himself, I'm not saying that we join sinners in their sin. But I am saying that we need to stop thinking that we're going to be contaminated by their sin. There's no such thing as ritual impurity in the new covenant of Christ. Second, we need to make clear the grace of the gospel as well as the demands of discipleship. We need to make clear the grace of the gospel as well as the demands of discipleship. On more than one occasion in the gospels, you read that the crowds start getting enormous. And based on what we know, you just think the disciples are like, yeah, look at this. This is awesome. You know, we, we, are, we, are, the, we are trending now as the number one movement in all of Israel. This thing is going to be awesome. And Jesus is like, I don't like it. And so he decides to stop and start teaching about what true discipleship is like. Why? Because he understands why people are there. They're there for the free food. They're there for the spectacle of the miracles. They're there to experience the healings. So Jesus says, what I want are people who understand that they're sinful and that they want God. So he'll turn to these massive crowds and say, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, 
Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And at one point, all but the 12 were left standing there. And they're just like, what happened? Why did you say that? And Jesus says, because discipleship is not fun and games. It's not Kiwanis Club. It's not just something fun that we do a couple times a month. It is life. It's costly. When Jesus preached the gospel and called disciples, he made two things abundantly clear. The grace of God that went further than any sin you could ever commit, offered freely through his death, and the unyielding loyalty expected of those who follow him in faith. So when you go to make disciples, don't offer cheap grace. Don't offer a distorted gospel. Be honest with them. Be honest about their sin. Some are so friendly to sinners that sin never comes up. It's like, well, you know, just go to church and you read your Bible and it's all cool. You know, no, they're going to hell apart from Jesus. Be clear about that. Jesus was clear about that. As Pastor Rich is going to talk about, I think next week, when Jesus can talk to the woman at the well, he comes with tenderness and compassion. But what does he do? He puts his finger right on her sin. Go get your husband. I don't have one. You're right, you don't. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. How's that for seeker friendly? Jesus is clear about our depravity, but he is also crystal clear about grace. It's okay if you repent and look to me and throw your life fully on me, trusting that me and me alone, I and I alone will bring you to God that you may find forgiveness and freedom from your sin. You don't have to give yourself away looking for satisfaction in all these other places. You don't have to find your worth and your identity in what you do and who you're with. Come to me and I will give you a new identity that is freeing by anything you can imagine because you are freed from sin. He's clear on grace. He's clear on unyielding warranty, uh, loyalty. So, Be honest with sin. Be honest about grace. Be honest that their life is probably not going to get easier, but it is certainly going to get better. There are some of you in this congregation that can stand up here if I called upon you right now, apart from the fact that you'd probably be scared out of your minds, but you can stand up and you can testify to the fact that when you got saved, your life did not get easier. The furnace turned up the temperature by 500 degrees, but you are still happy to be Christ's. There is still joy in your life that makes your difficulties tolerable and even conquerable. Be honest that knowing Christ and being known by him is the greatest treasure a person will ever know in this life or the life to come. He is worth every sacrifice. This morning, there are only two people here. You're either sick and you need to go to Christ and find healing. And to you, I say, go. Go and look to Christ. Find in him everything that you need. Believe in his life, death, and resurrection that you will find forgiveness in life with God. The other kind of people are those who've already been to the great physician and by by faith found forgiveness and healing and life in him. You are a disciple. And the call for us this morning is to continue to be a disciple, to continue to follow Christ and go and make more disciples. Seek out the lost, befriend them, spend time with them. Get your life dirty with them. Not your soul because you're engaging in sin, but your life chaotic and hectic because you have this moving orbit of relationships that are all needy, sinful people. And just keep proclaiming Christ to them in love and friendship that he might be glorified and disciples might be made. Father, that is our calling this morning. We know it's difficult. But Father, that's why you give us more grace. That's why you you give us all the resources that we need. 
to live lives that are pleasing to you, to serve you in ways that baffle the minds of unbelievers. God, give us the grace we need to follow after your Son and to make disciples in His name. We pray for His glory in all things. Amen.